Welcome everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us today on this episode of Activist Lawyer. I am here in the studio with Parikh Omari. Thank you, Parikh, for joining us. No problem. Glad to be here. Of Omari Solicitors. So we are going to um, talk about, there's quite a few issues that we're going to cover today. But firstly, just to give listeners uh, a brief introduction about your experience. So you're an experienced legal practitioner specialising in inquest law, legacy inquiries, actions against the police, human rights law, judicial review, criminal law and strategic litigation. So you're currently involved in some high-profile campaigns um, relating to the Bally Murphy massacre, the Spring Hill massacre and Kelly's Bar bombing. You successfully applied to the local Attorney General to have inquest reopened into a number of legacy cases, including the deaths of the 10 people shot dead by the British Army in Bally Murphy in 1971. Porrick has acted for a number of families in legacy inquests and on each occasion the coroner has found that the force used by the state agents in the circumstances of the death of their loved ones was unjustified. He's also issued civil proceedings against the Ministry of Defence and the British government on behalf of hundreds of former internees in relation to the legality of internment and their ill treatment. He's actively involved in the progressive development of law and the promotion of equality and social justice outside the courts. So you've been an advisor to members of the Assembly and Policing Board on issues relating to legacy investigations and policing and justice policy. He's also been experienced in providing assistance to negotiations related in to the Colombian peace process held in Havana, Cuba. Um, and you support the work of Inquest and is a member of the Inquest Lawyers Group and Haldian Society of Socialist Lawyers. So thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you here in our studio. So um, I think it's difficult for me. It's been difficult to pinpoint key aspects of your work because I suppose your career to date has been so vast and so encompassing in terms of the different cases that you've worked on. Um, But we'll touch a little bit on your career journey today and I suppose what inspired you to get into law, specifically this type of practice. Um, I know it's quite intense and we have had lawyers on, I suppose, doing similar um, areas of practice as you. So I think everybody comes with a different angle and hopefully then you can share some advice with our listeners and some aspiring activist lawyers as well. So just firstly, going back, what got you into this area and can you give us a little bit of an insight into your legal career? Well, when when I was growing up, um, lawyers were spoken of warmly in our household. Um, My father's a former political prisoner. during the conflict and other other relatives as well and I, and I grew up in the Clannard area of West Belfast on an interface um, uh, the, the Peace Wall which straddles Bombay Street, Cooper Street uh, very close mm-hmm. to that so we, we, I would have grown up with uh, lawyers being talked about at home uh, you know uh, my, my mother and my grandmother uh, would have been up to the, the jail uh, I'd have been going myself they'd have been visiting with lawyers and, th- and they often spoke about Pat Finucane, PJ McGrory yeah uh, later on, Rosemary Nelson as well. So these people, uh, it, this was an honourable profession. Mm-hmm. I was encouraged uh, to look at a career in law. Um, I was pushed in that direction, but um, it wasn't difficult because, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be an underestimation to say that some of the people I've mentioned there, like like Pat and Rosemary and, and PJ, were heroes of mine. Yeah. They were they were doing this job at a very difficult time, at a very dangerous time, much more dangerous yeah. than I'm doing it. And some of them lost their lives, obviously doing that as well. Uh, so and 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 you know the, the law w- was used by the state as a tool to uh, deny human rights abuses, but they took a very different approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used the internet, domestic courts, but also the international courts, and, and went to Europe. And we cases like the McCann case, 
uh, and, and other, a number of other cases from this jurisdiction which were very important in the development of the jurisprudence of human rights mm-hmm. at, at, the, at the European courts. So, I mean, I was growing up uh, and, and was influenced by that. And, uh, you know, I was often told by my, 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 my parents, grandparents, that the law could be used to assist your community. And, and we had examples of that. And we had local great advocates, fearless advocates. And it wasn't too difficult to be inspired by that. So that, that's really why I became interested and inspired to do law at that particular time. And I know just from reading a little bit um, up about your career, you had a great push from your, your family as well. In particular, one member of your family, your granny, I think, was keen for you to get involved in law. That's right. I mean, um, I really had no choice if I would think yeah. back about it, you know, because that was even before I really grasped the concepts of law and the principles of law. She often told me, you're going to be a lawyer. <laughs> and she was a, a great fan of, of Michael Mansfield QC. And, and I remember in particular, reading one of the, the broadsheets in uh, 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 my grandparents' house. And there's this article about this uh, Tory. Um, or sorry, his parents were Tories, and, mm-hmm. and he came from that sort of background. And, and I think he was in, grew up in Margaret Thatcher's constituency and licked the envelopes yeah. that were put through people's doors campaigning for during uh, some of her election campaigns. And, and he obviously went on to explain how he then became involved in a lot of social justice work and human rights work. And I remember that quite clearly, and, and mm-hmm. Michael was someone that she she had, uh, um, you know, a great interest in, and was interested in his work. So, yeah, and I and I remember thinking, yeah, if I do this, I'll, I'll maybe bring Michael Mansfield to Clannard, and, and eventually yeah. I was able to do that. So, yeah, <laughs> did, did he meet your granny? He did. Yes, the first time. I mean, when I called him um, to do the Ballymurphy case, I knew that he'd be, he'd be aware of. It. Obviously, it, it was it was touched upon at the bloody mm-hmm. Sunday inquiry which he was involved in that's right yeah. and um i'd called him i got his i got an email address and said listen could you take a call i'm, I'm, I'm interested in um working with you on a particular case and we'd arrange the time um i think it was on a sunday evening straight after a, a gaelic football game i was playing and <laughs> i remember running off the pitch getting changed and going out into the car park and, and making this call to michael and yeah, i'd mentioned balamorphy case he said absolutely no problem yeah right. i'm interested and I said to him, well, there's one condition, and there was a silence. And I'm sure Michael on the other end was saying, who is this young upstart lawyer <laughs> giving me conditions? Um, and and uh, after a, a brief silence, I said to him, if you take this case, you must come to Clannard and, and meet my grandmother. Wow. And uh, he, he said he would. So the first time that he came to Belfast to consult with the Balmurphy families, I think we had a site visit as well. Yeah. Um, on the way back to the airport, I said, now, you'll have to fulfill that condition. And he said, what condition? I think he'd forgot about it. <laughs> and he says, you're going to have to come to Clannard and have a cup of tea with my grandmother. So I phoned the grandmother and says, right, put the kettle on, have a visitor. I didn't tell her who it was. So when Michael walked in, um, he sat on the settee with her, held her uh-huh. hand, and they chatted about old legal cases and yeah. his career. So, yeah, no, that was... That was, that was That's uh, fantastic. Yeah. And he'd say she was super proud as well that, you know, not only did you become a lawyer at that stage, but you had Michael, Michael Manfield there as your... Yeah, it was a nice, a nice touch to bring him yeah. there. And, and uh, I mean, Megal Mansfield, I'm sure it's, it's someone you might have on your podcast at some time. Uh, is a great, is a great human person. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons I wanted him in the Balmurphy case. Aside from his very, his, his very obvious legal skills, mm-hmm. um, he's someone who I knew would connect with the families. And that's very important to me. Any mm-hmm. counsel that we've used or you know, lawyers from the office that engage with these legacy mm. cases, they, they have to understand the families and yeah. have, a, have a sympathy with the type of cases and have a certain 
way of dealing with people and, and he was very comfortable. And I have to say the rest of the legal team and, and Paul Murphy as well, yeah. we deliberately picked people um, like that. But um, yeah, yeah, Michael was um, glad to be in Clannard to get a, a visit to Clannard. Absolutely. So really your family and I suppose your community helped shape your, shape your career at the beginning. And then your current, your law practice was established in 2011. And yes, that's right, yeah. with, I, I can see just the vision of it is about creating a legal firm with a radical edge that would fight injustice. So tell us how your practice came to be and, you know, what inspired you to set up by yourself? Well, I, I started as a paralegal. Uh, it was known then as Kevin R. Winter Solicitors and, mm-hmm. and now known as KRW Law. And it's uh, several years of paralegal and, and obviously then qualified. And after, I think, two years, I left and set up my own practice. I'd always wanted to have a practice in, in my own community. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, um, a, a property became available on the Springfield Road, which was literally only a few doors away yeah. from my parents' home. And um, I leased the property there and eventually uh, was, was lucky again in that the doctor's surgery facing it, that building became available. And when, whenever we started to grow our initial building, so we moved directly across the road uh, and, and remain on the Springfield Road. Wow, brilliant. I noticed that you provide uh, services in Irish language as well. How did that come about? Is that something that you've been passionate about? And um, how does that play out in terms of your, your services to clients? Well, I, I, I grew up uh, in Irish language medium. Bunch school football first year. Um, I'm very proud of that. My children have all gone through uh, the Bunch school, uh, mm-hmm. school. And I think Irish language speakers have a right to go about their daily lives using their native tongue and they've faced many obstacles um you know for many decades and, and much longer where the language has been discriminated against almost decimated mm-hmm. so I, I support and understand uh, the right to do that and where we can offer ser- uh, offer services uh, legal services through the irish language uh, then we'll do that you, you'll, you'll note that our that our website yeah. we, we try to be as bilingual as we can I have a number of staff members who have, you know, varying degrees of Irish, and I suppose in any CV that I get, it's something that I notice if if, if someone's an Irish speaker, it's it's an attractive proposition for for people coming to the office as well. And you know, you've seen the 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 recent Act in the Gaelic, an Irish campaign, which has been fantastic. It's put it right up there, and and you know, whilst they've had uh, little success going through the assembly, hopefully there's another route to that act, and I totally support their right to use use the Irish language in the courts on, on, on a par with, you know, the, the Welsh yeah. Language Act and obviously the South of Ireland as well. So, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a great supporter of that. But it's really something that's ca- crossing all boundaries. I mean, with people from all communities getting involved, whether it's the Irish language, it's taken up GAA sports, and it's great to see, and probably more so in, in Belfast and areas surrounding you. So it's really having an impact there and a, a kind of organic, natural You have a, you have a very vibrant, and I was yeah. lucky enough to grow up in this. You know, the, the Bun School, when I first started, uh, I suppose it would have been in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, had no government funding. The parents literally week by week got sponsor mm-hmm. sheets and kept the school going. Um, and it, it obviously was very difficult for the, the parents and the teachers and, and, sure. and the board of governors and all of that. But we, we had a, a real sense of community at that school. Mm-hmm. I suppose to describe it a wee bit like the community I grew up in as well. Um, but a wee bit of a chip on their shoulder, you know. Yeah. The, the world <laughs> was against you. Um, you felt different. You felt it was a real identity. Um, when we when we played, when we started the Gaelic team in the school, and I was on the first Gaelic team we had, um, you know, you could see the, the confusion in the faces of the other students when we played them. We, we spoke in Irish um, all the time. And we, we were very proud of that. We felt we felt a wee bit different. Um, 
And you can see the progress that has been made since then. There are now many yeah. bun skull, knee skulls. You now That's have right. the man skull. Unfortunately, the man skull wasn't built when I uh, moved from primary school to secondary school, so I never got to go to the man skull. But you've seen the growth of the Irish language, a very vibrant, um, a very progressive um, community and, and something that I'm glad they've been part of as well. I just was looking at somebody tweeted this week. Um, we'd shared it. I'm in a, a WhatsApp group with lawyers practicing immigration. And somebody said, um, being a lawyer is just like getting paid to have anxiety for somebody else. So I know this is a bit of tongue in cheek and people had shared it. But I'm just wondering, I mean, your, your cases, you mentioned there, Bally Murphy. I mean, it must be difficult on a personal level. You know, when we had Dara Mackin on before and other solicitors talking about their work and how close they get um, with victims and families and survivors. How do you find, you know, that balance and how, I mean, how do you take that on in terms of the personal? I, I don't try and find balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from that community. Yeah. These people um, are, are, are people that I, you know, many of the Ballamorphy families grew up with my uh, mother and her, her uncles and aunts. Yeah. My mother's from Ballamorphy. My grandmother was a, was a friend of Joan Connolly who was, who was shot dead mm-hmm. at Ballamorphy. So um, I, I, I don't try to look for a balance. I, I just... Um, I do my job. I'm very mm-hmm. proud to do it. Our office is, is an open door. I mean, very often, I mean, when we were in the middle of the inquest, the, the, you know, and even the years leading up to it, we'd have had meetings weekly, sometimes more than that. So whenever we had those, the families mm-hmm. would walk in straight into the kitchen, put the kettle on. Oh. And that was always the practice that I wanted, where people would feel comfortable. It wasn't a very stuffy, legal, formal yeah. setting. So I, I didn't seek to have some kind of balance or use words like balance. It just yeah. it is what it is. I still have to be professional. I still have to give them advice. Um, that advice has to be objective mm-hmm. and the correct advice. But um, at the same time, that doesn't mean that we can't have a relationship. Um, I mean, even uh, you know, some of the families uh, refer to you as their their big son, as as yeah. as, as, as uh, Mrs. Bonner does, uh, John Laverty's sister, Rita. Um, so you have that kind of relationship where they already knew the family. It didn't take long to get to know them, and we, you know, whenever we see each other, we ask about you know how's the children, how's the family. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of relationship we have, and I think that's that's the only way we, we do it. Yeah, and despite the fact that I suppose some of these uh, the incidents and the cases that you're dealing with occurred, you know, forty plus years ago, there's still that generational trauma, and you can probably see that with the families, you know, as your clients now as well. And I know there was, um, I mean in inverted commas, good news recently in terms of Bally Murphy, you know, where they were declared entirely innocent, which still just baffles me to this day to see how, how long that took and how ridiculous that was to get, you know. But at the same time, um, matters still seem to continue. And I know that currently you're involved in um, a related matter just about um, something that really, really affects the families now in terms of the retention of... Um, you know, um, the, spe- the, t- the human, tissue. human tissue, yeah, and, and how one, one example, them. an, an organ was, was retained and destroyed. I mean, that, that, was, that was deeply traumatic for yeah. the families. As you say, we had the inquest findings. Um, you know, families were, were, were obviously, after a long campaign, you know, mm. they had legal vindication. Uh, mm. You know, they were on a high after that. Yeah. I know that it still brought back a lot of memories, but, I mean, uh, certainly there was a sense that they'd achieved something. Good. And and then this this news came out of the blue um, that uh, that the some human tissue samples were retained in relation mm. to five deceased and, and and one example an organ which was subsequently destroyed without their consent and we're now dealing with that matter now so it was it was deeply 
regrettable that that happened. Um, and we're still uh, waiting on a meeting with state pathology and the coroner's office, which we'll probably do next week, to seek some answers to that or some clarification. But yeah, that's a that's been a, a difficult moment for them. So that continues, I suppose, with the families. It's very, very sad. So just, I know that you're working on a number of um, core cases, um, quite high-profile cases. Can you update us on how you're... Uh, well, yes, um, I'm currently involved in the inquest of Stephen Gaddis. Stephen Gaddis was a 10-year-old, shot dead by the British Army in 1975, mm-hmm. just a, sh- a short distance from, from our office. And uh, a plastic bullet or baton round was used Um so that inquest commenced a number of weeks ago. It, it has been adjourned until early in the new year. There's outstanding forensic work uh, to be done and uh, some soldier statements to be taken. So we, we've that inquest poses is part heard. Um, we, we're also involved um, in recent weeks in relation to some civil litigation arising from Legacy and the Marion Brown case. Um, we've, we've had... Um, that case settled, uh, which I can't discuss it too mm-hmm. much on, on a confidential basis. Yeah. Uh, so we're still quite busy with, with other cases, and, and obviously our practice deals with non-legacy issues, sure. which, which, which we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just on that point, and I suppose there's no getting away from this, and I'm sure it really impacted you and your clients as well, the Tory government's recent move to grant immunity from prosecution to former veterans here. I mean... I know a lot of people were uh, that we've spoken to here as well have been absolutely incensed by this. How do you think see things moving? I mean, that must have been such a blow. Are people willing to challenge that? You know, is this something that people are going to take further or accept? Yeah, uh, there's no doubt it will be challenged. I mean, it's clearly incompatible with uh, their domestic and international mm-hmm. uh, human rights obligations. I should say, though, that uh, you know there effectively has been a de facto amnesty during the course of the conflict. You've had, um, st- you know, state forces um, very, very rarely brought before the courts and even um, a smaller number convicted in relation to these matters. And, and I've been involved in a number of inquests, you know, 14 deaths already through inquests. And, and in all of those cases, mm-hmm. it was deemed that force use wasn't justified. So, um, but these these proposals, I suppose, and on the back of Alan Murphy are, are no real surprise. There's been mm-hmm. talk about this move for a number of years. But I think it's much more than the amnesty issue. Yeah. Uh, the, they, they intend to halt inquest and civil, all civil litigation relating to legacy cases. And I think that's much broader. Um, and I don't think that's any great um, great accident coming after mm-hmm. the recent, recent assault at Ballamorphy, which got international, obviously international yeah. publicity. And I think what they're trying to do, obviously, is to end judicial activism. There's been a lot of um, confidence uh, from the communities that I'm working with in relation to the ability of the judiciary to deliver human rights-compliant results in, yeah. in, in the courts and a more, much more confidence in the justice system than there would have been during the course of a recent conflict. Um, and legal processes are very, very important. I mean, they, 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 they talk about this alternative of information recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not going to work. Yeah. Fortunately, people will not get involved in that. Legal processes are vital for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, when the truth's been buried, you need to excavate the truth. And how you do that is through disclosure of documentation, the examination of that, using expertise, whether that's forensic, you know, engineering expertise, examining witnesses, and that's this is very, very important at inquest. It's not just the fact that statements are taken or people are mm-hmm. traced, but the opportunity to challenge that 
um, their accounts at inquest, and, and, and that, that uniquely happens in a courtroom setting. And what you can do at the other end of that is arrive at findings which hold up, which are evidence-based. You know, information of covering it. And I, I recently delivered the PJ McGrory lecture yes. and the fail in football, and I talked about this issue. And I gave an example in Balamorphy of how information recovery might work as opposed to a legal process. So we, we, we had a witness at that inquest called C3. And uh, he came forward after a surgery, a witness surgery on the Shankill Road. And in his statement, he said that Father Mullen, who, who was shot dead at Balamorphy, um, he said that he, he observed this shooting and that Father Mullen was wearing robes. He stepped mm-hmm. over a fence, lifted his... And he, he described this in some detail, lifted his robe. He then walked towards uh, Bobby Clark, who was the first person shot. Um, yeah. And Bobby was very seriously injured, but he survived. And, and he was a very impressive witness at the recent inquest. And he described how this priest then lifted a gun, which was nearby, and put it up his robe to hate it. Um, so that for me, that's information recovery. It's mm-hmm. unchallenged. It's, you know, it arises from a request for information. Yeah. It's untested. If we didn't have a legal process like the inquest where this witness could be called, mm-hmm. we would have the opportunity to challenge it. And what we had, which the witness may not have known, was that we had the autopsy photographs. Right. We had, um, you know, other witness statements. Yeah. Um, and it was very clear that he wasn't wearing a robe. He was wearing black trousers. So the description that he gave... Uh, for, in my opinion, was an attempt to malign the character of the priest, and and obviously then would justify why a soldier might have shot at him. Uh, so, for me, there's a scenario of information recovery versus legal process, and if you don't have the opportunity to challenge information, and I don't call it necessarily evidence, you know, until it's tested, you know, it's not evidence based. That's the kind of process we can end up with. Mm-hmm. where families are given information, they don't have an opportunity to challenge it, they don't know if it's accurate, there's no facility potentially to engage forensic experts to, to view that as well, to have a forensic look at the issues. And the Balmurphy inquest showed that the legal process is a much more robust yeah. forum for doing that. So if we're, if we're dealing with even incidents almost 50 years ago, we can still, yeah. as best we can, give families the truth. Mm-hmm. But it's not enough just to provide information. No. And we will end up with false narratives. We will end up with insinuations. Yeah. And though, th- you know, false narratives and insinuations are abhorred by the court. They're not, they're not tolerated in the courtroom. So I think, I think legal processes have a very important role to play in any truth recovery process. And do you think cases like Bally Murphy maybe have a greater impact on society as a whole? I mean, in terms of lessons to be learned, not just within the legal context, but particularly for this part of the world? Absolutely. But Balamorphy can play a bigger role uh, in terms of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you look at the Balamorphy community, uh, long before the physical violence of the Parachute Regiment in 1971, you had the structural violence of the state. Mm-hmm. For many decades, that was the, the Orange State, where you had housing discrimination, you had employment discrimination. If you look at the, the statistics in this, it was the highest uh, in, in what they called the United Kingdom. And so you had the structural violence, and John Gultang is a Norwegian sociologist who I'm a big fan of, and he talks mm-hmm. about the triangle of violence, you know, you the physical, the structural, which I described, and then the cultural violence, which is the misinformation, mm-hmm. the demonization of all of that community. So this is a community which had a, a very poor interface with yeah. the justice system. And um, what the, the Balmorphy inquest done 
which is much bigger than just you know the legal vindication of those innocent people, and that that was all the right thing to do. But that community then could have a confidence in the justice system, and that's that's much bigger. That's about mm-hmm. reconciliation. So, where you have people encouraging young people, but in particular, um, to look at alternatives to the justice system, you can argue forcibly that um, that this other that the justice system works. And you can point to examples. In Ballamorphy, you can point to a very particular example. Yeah. And I think that's key. When I was growing up, that was, that was a much more difficult job. When I started out in this journey as a, as, a, as a lawyer doing these type of cases, it was difficult to convince families that you could down this road and you could get a result. Yeah. And now we have, we have clear, identifiable examples of that. And I think that has a much bigger role in terms of reconciliation and peace building in this community. Yeah. So we've looked just there as well at, I suppose, attempts to disrupt... Um, you know, judicial process. And just, I'm wondering about your opinion on maybe recent challenges to, I mean, the rule of law that we've spoken on here before about, and also here about the Good Friday Agreement as well. You know, various challenges posed to that. Um, I know you have commented on it previously in terms of the internal market um, a couple of years back. But where are we now with that, do you see, in terms of, um, you know, access and justice and making sure that that remains a robust mechanism for us? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm often asking, I think it was maybe something you might raise with me, would I encourage young people to go into law? Mm-hmm. And I was at this position at one point, and on and, and, and many occasions you'll have small victories and larger defeats, you know, yeah. and, and especially during the conflict here. It was, it was a very difficult time, much more difficult than it is now. We, we've made great ground in terms of the, the, the broadening jurisprudence, human rights mm-hmm. jurisprudence. The European Court obviously played a key role in that. And if you look around the world, and even in, in Palestine, you know, the Israeli courts, you know, weren't really a, a strong forum for, um, you know, legal activism. Mm-hmm. But you still had some good results around, um, you know, travel permits and yes. land rights for, for Palestinians. The same in Chile, where there was tens of thousands of uh, victims of torture and, and murder by the state. You still had these um, examples of, of legal cases winning where people's execution w- 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 was, was stayed and, and the things they got. So very often lawyers work in, a, in, a, in an arena where they only get small victories and, and much larger defeats and it can be very, very difficult mm-hmm. at times. But that, you know, there, there's always hope. Yeah. There always, you know, it's always a potential site for social change, for legal victories then that will that, obviously impact um, on society. So I, I would always encourage people that you know, despite all of those, you know, the 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 the, the arc of history to say bends, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's quite clear that sometimes you take a step back, mm-hmm. you may take too forward, and and it can be frustrating. But we still have to keep at it yeah. and still have faith that and, and have an optimism about the rule of law, a stubborn optimism about mm-hmm. the rule of law. And as a, as a uh, acquaintance of mine, Albie Sachs, the former constitutional judge in South Africa who was appointed by Medela. I work with him in the Colombian peace process and I've had him over to West right. Belfast for the, the festival as well. I mean, he always talks about um, we need to realign the rule of law with justice mm-hmm. and that's always a battle. Yeah, You'll have good days, you'll probably have more bad days, but you just got to keep, uh, you just keep got to chip away, work away mm-hmm. and when those victories come, um, you know, you got to think of the next one, you got to move on, yeah. you know, bank it and move on to the next because there will always be other other cases, other 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 causes you need to be working on. So, I mean, it's clear from your work that there's a really strong emphasis on your community, and I don't just mean in the sense of your local community, which you're very much a part of, and it informs your work and just the way you work in general, but also in a wider context. And um, I'm just wondering, just your work, how does that contribute to, I mean, 
equality and the promotion of equality and justice maybe outside of legal practice, you know, within the community. I know you have a few initiatives that you've been working on yourself um, outside of, you know, the day-to-day legal work. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm involved in, um, I'm probably at one point involved in too many, you know, different <laughs> community organisations, you know, I've done work with the, um, you know, the local residents around mm-hmm. resolution of, of issues, you know, where, where planners in, a, in an interface area, with issues with, with um, you know, parades and stuff in the past, so I've done work around that. Um, I do a lot of other uh, work in, in, the, in the community with a local festival trying to promote you know, a community that was that was demonised during the conflict, trying to promote a better image of that community, bring in uh, international speakers um, to um, end the West Belfast and shine a light on it and, and pro- also promote local people as well. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, as, as lawyers, it's it's an arena for for activism, um, uh-huh. but that, that isn't just in the court. It's not just yeah. in the office. I think, you know, once we go out there, and we're very lucky in West Belfast, we've had a lot of examples, you know, the PJ McGrory's and the the Oliver Kelly's and people, Pat Finnegan's, people who preceded me, were mm-hmm. fearless advocates for this community. And there's a there's a real vibrant, um, you know, respect for human rights and, yeah. and, and the work that we're doing within our community. So uh, that's all to be welcome. And I know you're a great sportsman. Do you think that your involvement with, with football and uh, sports really feeds into that? Is that part of the Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm involved in underage teams and um, currently managing St. Gaul's senior football team. Um my playing days are over, right. um, regrettably, but <laughs> I'm, I'm too old and too slow. So I've transformed that on to the coaching. And the, G- the GAA, I mean, absolutely, you'll know that from being a, a, a Nuri mm-hmm. uh, resident as well. Mm-hmm. The GAA plays a, an absolutely massive role in, in the communities all over Ireland. Um, I mean, your local GAA club, uh, you're christened there. Yeah. You're, 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 you might even have your communion there, your, your, you know, your birthdays, your 18th, your 21st. Um, you, some of you may even have your wedding reception and you'll be playing bingo there when you're a pensioner. I mean, the, the, everything evolves around the GA club. Uh, and I think it's a, it's, a great, it's a great thing we have. We're very unique in, in mm-hmm. the world to have such a strong sporting and cultural organisation which, which is at the heart of our community. So, yeah, I enjoy, en- enjoy that work. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm married to a St. Gaul's woman as well. She's, <laughs> she's a, I'm actually the only person in the house that playing football them and my wife's playing for Gaelic for mothers so wow. I'm feeling a wee bit left out yeah, um, you'll have to pick that up again uh, <laughs> no I think I'm too young for that but yeah yeah, it's a big it's a big part of my life and my family's life yeah. and I think uh, I have to say we're, we're very lucky to have the GA. absolutely and I suppose you did touch on it there and about um people getting involved in, in this type of work but just for listeners um who are and I know that a lot of our the people listening to this podcast that's one of the things they're really interested in you know lawyers who have experience in their journeys and finding out how they got into law but do you have any practical advice or tips for anybody who would like to get into this area of law or anybody who feels you know passionate about something and wants to use law not necessarily to qualify as a solicitor for example but want to use that arena to maybe um let their voice be heard and represent others yeah i mean i i often get uh emails almost on a weekly basis mm-hmm. uh, in relation to this people who want to come and, and as much as possible to try to bring people in for work experience yes. so the first first advice we'd give them is get experience mm-hmm. and um you know that they're 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 not many but there are a number of offices who are doing this human rights work try and try and, and it's not always easy try and mm-hmm. get some experience uh, doing the legacy work human rights work 
Uh, try other areas of law as well. You might find that they enjoy other bits and pieces mm -hmm. and it's attractive to employers when you have experience of, of a wide range of law and that may be the way in. Um, what I would say is it's it's hard work. Mm -hmm. um, it's not always lucrative, um, but it's, it isn't a sacrifice. I mean, I was, I was doing a recent interview with Albie Sachs, I mentioned earlier, yeah. and I talked about, you know, he was a, a lawyer who represented uh, many ANC members during the conflict. He was a you know, white South African. He could have had a, a privileged life as a, as a, as a, a white man, a lawyer, and, and apartheid South Africa. He chose the, the, the difficult route. And, you know, he eventually was detained and, and solidly confinement for a long period of time. He then had to leave South Africa mm -hmm. and, and was lecturing in Mozambique. And he lost an arm in an undercar explosion. So there was someone there who got involved in, in this type of work who made many sacrifices for yeah. it. And I put this question to him uh, in an interview for Fela uh, just a, a month or two back. And I asked him, you know, you know, was the sacrifice worth it? And his answer was, was, was very, it left me stunned, to be honest. And mm -hmm. he said, well, it wasn't a sacrifice. Yeah. He says, not at all. I, I got to meet great people. I got to do work that I loved. It would have been a sacrifice if I didn't do it. I would have sacrificed my soul. So, you know, when young people like that who are deeply passionate about it, mm -hmm. um, you know, you often hear people saying, well, you're going to have to sacrifice. I don't think it's a sacrifice at all. I think it's the right move. If that's the kind of work that you love, um, if you can find a labour of love, it's very, very important in your life. And it happens to be this type of work, then I would encourage that. Um, you will have, you know, it is difficult, you know, the institute to get into the institute. You get a law degree, first of all, to get into the institute. You'll have knockbacks mm -hmm. um, to get the right office. Yeah. You know, you might have to take it. It won't be a straight line. Uh, you may have to take a, a, a longer route, but just stick at it. And because uh, the key thing is passion. You mentioned mm -hmm. the word passion. It's the absolutely key thing. And uh, don't be deterred from that. And hopefully mm -hmm. you'll find the right place, the right work you're doing. And if you carry that passion into your work, then you'll be successful at it. Fantastic. Well, look, that was absolutely fantastic advice. Um, and I'm sure people will find your, your story and your journey there so interesting. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, glad to be here. And um, we look forward to checking in again with you soon, hopefully. No problem. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.